From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. The author of some two dozen novels under both his own name and an alliterative pseudonym, John Banville is best known for his book The Sea, which won the 2005 Man Booker Prize. His work has also been recognized with the Prince of Asturias Award for Literature, the Irish Pen Award for Outstanding Achievement in Irish Literature, and the Franz Kafka Prize, among numerous other honors. John worked as a journalist for more than 30 years as well, including serving as the literary editor at the Irish Times from 1988 to 1999. We sat down to brunch last November during his time as a short-term visitor at Notre Dame's Keough Naughton Institute for Irish Studies. Our conversation started with him reading from the sea, and we then talked about everything from the writing process and what makes a hero to the bet John's accountant placed on him when he was a long shot to win the Booker Prize. Oh, and in the process, he just happened to tell me what he believed to be the greatest invention in the history of humankind. How's that for building some intrigue? So, John Banville, welcome to With the Side of Knowledge. Thank you for making time for our show. Very glad to be here. You won the 2005 Man Booker Prize for your novel, The Sea, which was your, I think was your 13th novel under your own name. We'll come back to the name thing later. But to start, I'm hoping you'll give listeners a taste of your work by reading a page or so from the sea. I'd be happy to. We have had a storm. It went on all night long and into the middle of the morning. An extraordinary affair. I've never known the like in these temperate zones for violence or duration. I enjoyed it outrageously, sitting up in my ornate bed as on a catafalque, if that is the word I want. The room a flicker around me and the sky stamping up and down in a fury, breaking its bones. At last, I thought, at last, the elements have achieved a pitch of magnificence to match my inner turmoil. I felt transfigured. I felt like one of Wagner's demigods, aloft on a thundercloud and directing the great booming chords, the clashes of celestial symbols. In this mood of histrionic euphoria, fizzing with brandy fumes and static, I considered my position in a new and crepitant light. I mean my general position. I have ever had the conviction, resistant to all rational considerations, that at some unspecified future moment, the continuous rehearsal which is my life, with its so many misreadings, its slips and fluffs, will be done with, and that the real drama for which I have ever, and with such earnestness, been preparing, will begin at last. It is a common delusion, I know. Everyone entertains it. Yet last night, in the midst of that spectacular display of Valhallan petulance, I wondered if the moment of my entrance might be imminent, the moment of my going on, so to say. I do not know how it would be, this dramatic leap into the thick of the action, or what exactly might be expected to take place on stage, 
Yet I anticipate an apotheosis of some kind, some grand climacteric. I am not speaking here of a posthumous transfiguration. I do not entertain the possibility of an afterlife or any deity capable of offering it. Given the world that he created, it would be an impiety against God to believe in him. Forgotten that. <laughs> I do not entertain the possibility of an afterlife or any deity capable of offering it. Given the world that he created, it would be an impiety against God to believe in him. No, what I'm looking forward to is a moment of earthly expression. That is it exactly. I should be expressed totally. I should be delivered like a noble closing speech. I should be, in a word, said. Has this not always been my aim? Is this not, indeed, the secret aim of all of us? To be no longer flesh, but transformed utterly into the gossamer of unsuffering spirit? Bang, crash, shudder, the very walls shaking. And I I recognize that was a long passage I asked you to read, but one of the, the reasons I did that, that I wanted to do for the listeners, is in all the celebration around this book, one thing that comes up time and again, and I know you're writing in general, but this book in particular, is the style of your prose, the way you craft it. And it really, just sitting here listening to you now in a restaurant with noise in the background, it really is, it's beautiful writing. And I, there was there was a line from the Daily Telegraph's review of the book that I loved that said, they are like hits of some delicious drug, these sentences. And I'm wondering, as a writer, how, how do you arrive at that point? Is it a process of continuously fine-tuning your prose, or when you're... Are you, are you drafting in such a lyrical language, right, when you when you sit down to, to write the first time? Well, I think one has to arrive at a synthesis of rhythm and meaning. You know, every sentence has to mean something. Um, I don't believe in impressionistic prose. I like straightforward declarative sentences. But the rhythm is very important. I believe that the sentence is the greatest invention of humankind. There have been civilizations that didn't have the wheel, the Aztecs and the Incas or somebody. But they had to have the sentence because there wouldn't have been a civilization without it. And what a privilege it is for me to spend my life tinkering with this essential invention of our species. The sentence is the thing that I trust. The sentence carries me forward. If I get a sentence as close to being right as I can. It would never be right, but it's close. It's like the infinitesimal calculus. When I get as close as I can to, to having it right, then I can move on to the next sentence. And I trust the sentence to guide me. I don't really think about plots or characters or dialogue or anything else. I, I think about the sentence, and I think in the sentence. That's my, my mode. Mm-hmm. For Joyce, for instance, it's a paragraph. Mm-hmm. There's been no no greater writer of paragraphs than Joyce, and no greater judge of how paragraphs should be. It's a delight to look at Joyce's prose on the page. Mm-hmm. If I could, I would write the whole thing in one, one long paragraph and then in breaks, but it would be full of sentences. Mm-hmm. I love that. The greatest invention of, of humanity is a sentence. I, I well, think about it. I mean, yeah. It's, it's, we think in sentences. Yep. We declare love in sentences, we declare war in sentences. Our laws, it says, are graven in language and graven in sentences. The sea 
takes place in large part at the beach, but it was it wouldn't be what we would reasonably call a beach read. Max Morden, the protagonist, he's reeling after the loss of his wife Anna. He returns to this beach town where he spent his summers growing up, and he had this relationship with the Grace family, who was wealthier than his own, and he went through kind of a whole gamut of emotions knowing that that family especially one fateful uh, fateful summer with confusion torment anger or what he thought was love maybe was just lust and he max remarks near the end of the story he says i cannot rid myself of the conviction that we meaning him and his now late wife anna miss something that i miss something only i do not know what it might have been as max's creator so to speak do you have thoughts on what he was looking for, or are you really dwelling more in the sentence and letting him, letting that take you wherever it may go? Well, I think we all have the sense that we're missing something, and that we, you know, this, that the real meaning is hidden behind things. I don't think it is, but we have that. We're haunted by that sense of, and when you get to my age, you're haunted by the sense of having forgotten something essential. It used to be that I felt that I was about to discover something essential now is that I've forgotten something essential <laughs> but I think as I said we, we, we all have that sense and of course when you suffer a devastating loss of the kind that Max has suffered then there will be a huge absence at the centre of your life which inevitably you'll try to fill one word that's I'd say really gotten popular in the last 15 or 20 years is this idea of an anti-hero someone we wouldn't necessarily expect to be a hero and I, I don't think I would I would call him that but there were times where I felt that he wasn't a particularly likable character he even refers to himself as a little brute with a filthy mind at one point but at the same time that didn't mean I didn't care what happened to him I very much cared what happened to him and I'm wondering when you think about him is he a kind of a living breathing representation of some of the lesser instincts all of us have at times and they're just kind of coming to light someone who's brutally honest and just really introspective or is, is he something else? Well, I think that your last point is the essential one. He's honest. <laughs> um, he's not any worse than anybody else. Right. He just doesn't present himself in a good light. He feels residual guilt as I think everybody who's bereaved feels. Mm-hmm. And he presents himself as somewhat monstrous, but he's not. He's just human, like the rest of us. None of us is very nice. <laughs> we pretend, and thank goodness we do. Although in America nowadays, I think niceness is in abeyance for the moment. Uh, but, you know, it, in order for civilization to proceed, we have to pretend to be nicer than we are. And I, I did have that thought reading that, of at, at those moments when I was reading and thinking... What is my feeling about him? Do I like him or not? And I was asking that very question. Is is it him that I'm thinking about, or am I thinking about just our humanity in general and the aspects, like you said, that everyone shares, and we do a good job maybe of putting a better face on it than who we are? Um, yeah, but you used, a, you used a, a word there that I wanted to pick out, a hero. I mean, what would a hero be? Mm. If we're talking about bravery, for instance... The brave are the ones who lack imagination. If you have an active imagination, then you will not be brave, because you know what's coming. A hero to me is someone who, like Max, lives his life as best he can, doesn't forgive himself his failings and his sins, has no, well, has few illusions about himself. But we have to keep in mind, he's a man 
crashing in grief. He's like a snail without his shell. If somebody sprinkles salt on, he's in agony. The agony may be a bit exaggerated, I think. I think that's what people do when they're in deep sorrow. Mm-hmm. Exaggerated, you know, throwing ashes over yourself, like a Sicilian widow is doing. Mm-hmm. So he is, he is a bit exaggerated. But he does give, I think, the honest, as honest as it's possible to be. He gives that account of himself. And we have, although she's very little in the book, his dead wife, it is, the book in a way is a wonderful memorial to her. He is unflinching in his execrations of his own failings. Well, and she, through him remembering it, she had the great line, I, I know I'm, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but she said something like, of course I hated you sometimes, we were human beings after all. Oh, yeah. And basically giving him permit permission to him to say, yeah. you weren't perfect and neither was I. And that's part of what makes our story interesting. Oh, I think that that's the moment when she's declaring love for him. She's saying, you know, go ahead, hit me a little. We're, we're just humans. You know, I, mean, I, I can't imagine a life between two people where they're loving and, you know, caring for each other. I mean, people fight. Right. I remember when my wife and I were married first. We were driving somewhere and we were having one of those fights that you couples have in the first few years when they're adjusting to each other. And she was in full rhetorical flow telling me what a swine I was, how monstrous I am. And I said to her, that's magnificent, can I use that? <laughs> and she said, God, you're even more of a monster. I said, I know, I know, but can I use it? And she said, well, all right. That's the kind of spouse every artist needs. Uh, but, you know, you, he... I just see Max as being ordinarily human, neither worse nor better than the rest of us. He just doesn't pretend as much. He screams abuse at his wife at one stage, you know, saying, how could you, how could you leave me? He uses four-letter words about it. A lot of people are shocked by that. Mm-hmm. But I had, a lot of people, I had a lot of letters from people who had been bereaved, and they said, this is exactly how mm-hmm. it is. Which I think was a wonderful compliment, because I have not been bereaved in that way. Right. In that piece you read, he talks about not being fully expressed in terms of an afterlife, but just kind of waiting around to be fully expressed in terms of the world and always having a sense of, it's coming, I sense it's coming, this great drama of my life is going to begin then. Uh, And I think that's something that a lot of people, and he references it in the actual prose, a lot of people can relate to. I know I certainly can. If just this one thing falls into place, then man, things are really going to come together for me. Do you have a sense of, through his story, maybe for lack of a a better word, a danger in that kind of way of of thinking, of waiting for the world, missing things if you're waiting for the world, or... This this is part of the tragedy of our predicament, that we're always waiting for the next thing. We're always waiting for the future. Undervaluing the present. Ridiculously nostalgic about the past, but the future. It's going to come, it's going to come. Now... Tomorrow, mm-hmm. next day, next month, it'll be here. We know in our rational selves it's not going to come. When we were scheduling this interview and I asked for something that I might read beforehand, you suggested the sea, even while you noted a lot of people think it's either your your only book or it was your first book, when in fact 
at the time, it was your your 13th. Mm-hmm. Uh, Night Spawn, your first novel, was published in 1971. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, as a writer, is it difficult to be so strongly associated with one book, one work, when I'm sure, in all the writing you've done, you've had other works that were at least as meaningful, if not more meaningful, to you? Well, I mean, one has to say that it's wonderful in the sense that look at the power of a prize. Mm-hmm. In those days... You know, it could increase the sale of a book 10, 20-fold. And maybe at least some of those people who bought it might actually read it as well, not just put it on the coffee table. But uh, I don't, you know, I, I quite like, I don't think that the, the Sea is my best book. My best book is the next one. You know, that's that's what's coming for me <laughs> is the next one. Mm-hmm. But it's it's wonderful to the people remember a book and still get something from it. And it's a very strange thing. There's a line in it towards the beginning of the book where he says the past beats inside me like a second heart. And I have had scores of people telling me that's that line has stayed in their mind. I don't know why. Just last night somebody wrote to me and said about this line. The power of prose the power of a well-turned sentence not that that's a particularly remarkable sentence uh, but the power of it to to speak directly to people speak past the surface right into their depths that's an extraordinary thing so how can I you know how can I not but be glad that people even if they do think it's my first book or my only book <laughs> look I mean the thing is that when writes not for book reviewers who don't read my reviews doesn't write for reviewers or for academics. Or for one writes, first of all, for oneself, and then in the hope that readers will just read it for love. The best review I've ever had it has only three words in it. One of my books in 1989 was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And I, was, I worked in the newspaper then, and I was going to the office one day. You know, because I'd been shortlisted, I was famous for... 15 seconds <laughs> and there was a workman going past on his bicycle on the way to work you know, and uh, he saw me obviously recognised me from the newspapers and from television came towards me at high speed I thought oh my god I'm going to be attacked just before he got to me he said great effing book <laughs> and I thought that is the best review I've ever had uh, and the other one that I remember is my wife was in a supermarket and the woman at the checkout looked at her credit card and said are you related to John Brown she said tell him the sea is the most beautiful thing I've ever read mm. that's you know who wants reviews who wants accolades right you know, that's that shows that somebody who perhaps normally wouldn't read that kind of book has read it mm-hmm. so the prize is good for that reason I'm all for prizes and I, I was going to ask you about that experience of hearing your name announced as the winner but I imagine I mean based on what you just said it I'll tell you exactly what I thought I thought imagine how many people hate me at this moment well I folks <laughs> I, I went back I read I read the kind of little there was a, a shorter story right when it was announced from the Guardian and I think one thing I wanted to point out to people listening to this is that people in the US probably don't have as good of a sense of the Booker Prize as we do have say the Pulitzer or something like that but the story in the Guardian was talking about the gambling lines because of all the people betting on the prize, how big of a deal it was, and 
it was particularly relevant in your case because you were not a favorite no, going no, in. I wasn't, I wasn't considered at all. My accountant won a bet on it, 14 to 1. <laughs> so, lucky him. I should have bet on myself. In fact, a gambling friend of mine explained it to me, but I couldn't understand it. He said, you should have bet on all the other five. Because that way you couldn't win. You couldn't lose. You couldn't lose. <laughs> if I won, then I won. Then you won. And if one of the others won, I won as well. Right. But I couldn't quite figure out the mathematics of it. <laughs> I won. As promised, in my very first question, I mentioned books under your own name. So I wanted to go back to the name thing. You've written, by my count, and I may have gotten this wrong, but I counted at least ten additional novels under the name Benjamin Black. What does Benjamin Black do or write that John Banville doesn't? Well, I'll tell you how he was invented. First of all, I began to read George Simenon, not so much the Maigret books, but what he called his hard novels, which are they're sort of crime novels, but they're really psychological studies. And I had never read Simenon before. This is about, this is 2004. I'd never read him before. And I was bowled over by what he could achieve with a very small vocabulary, very simple, direct style. Wrote his books very quickly. Some, some of them he wrote in a week, in ten days. He was having an affair with Josephine Baker, the nightclub dancer back in the 20s, and he'd only written four books that year, so he had to break off the affair because obviously she was keeping him from his desk. Uh, but I discovered him, discovered masterly writing. And I had been commissioned to write a television miniseries, which I wrote, which of course didn't get made, as most these <laughs> things don't. And one day I thought, under the influence of Simino, I thought I'd, I'd turn it into a novel. But I will write it under a pseudonym in order to let my readers know that this is not an elaborate literary postmodernist joke, that this is the real thing. Uh, so I, I was first of all, I was going to call myself Benjamin White after a character in my early books. And, Nobody reads them anymore, so they wouldn't know. But my publishers and my agent said, oh, we think black is better because, you know, sounds better. And also you get much higher on librarians' purchase lists, which are alphabetical. <laughs> I, I've, I've had that, that conversation before with a literary agent, that ex- and it was about pen names. It was that exact thing. I was like, no, you probably want, you want to trend more towards the beginning of the alphabet. And then I wrote that one book from Turn the Script into, into the book, Christine Falls, uh, I thought this would be a one-off, but then I got interested in the characters. And I got interested in that kind of writing, which I really hadn't done and they're, before. So they're mainly crime, is that right? Yeah. Crime novels? Well, my mission is to write a, a crime novel without a crime in it. Without crime in it. Yeah. yeah. I have a, a very cunning plan now, because one of the books called Elegy for April, the central character April, is supposedly is murdered, but her body is not found. So I'm going to bring her into a future book. And that means, retrospectively, I would have written... A crime novel without a crime. <laughs> like that. Ch- changes the whole thing. It's a completely different way of writing. Uh, it's craftsmanship. It's spontaneous. I've started write, I, I write all my books with a fountain pen and ink on paper. And I tried to do that with the Benson Black books, but that was too slow. Mm-hmm. So I write them onto the screen. Mm-hmm. But I still write Banville books with pen and ink. Because a Banville book would take three years. Benjamin Black will take three months. Mm-hmm. Now, when I say that crime writers get, I mean, real crime writers, genuine crime writers, get really annoyed. I don't know why. Because the point about crime fiction is that it should be written quickly and it should be written with dash and spontaneity. If I were to tinker over a crime novel as long as I 
do it with a bandolier, it would be tremendously dull. Mm-hmm. Even more dull than they are. <laughs> so when you're writing that out with a fountain pen for your books published under your name, is that how how much scribbling and crossing out is going on, or are you really kind of sifting through it bef- when you're committing it down then with your hand and your long hand? Is it you've really spent some time because you t- I mean you talked about working at that sentence level that you've really thought through this is what I want this to sound like when I write it yeah I, I have the rhythm of the sentence and once you have the rhythm of it the words will follow but you know it can take me the whole morning to write a sentence mm-hmm. um, and I don't consider it time wasted, wasted right um, well, there's that great Oscar Wilde quote about I looked at a proof of one of my poems all the morning took out a comma in the afternoon, I put it back in again. I mean, it, that sort of thing. Well, I've, I've had that experience. I mean, one of the books, I can't remember which, it took me three months to write the first paragraph. Over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, but again, I didn't think it was a waste mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. I oriented myself as to how to do it. And also, the first paragraph is very important for the reader, because you're teaching the reader how to read this book. Uh, you're saying that you have to slow down. You have to look at the words. You have to listen to the rhythm. Don't go dashing ahead looking for action. <laughs> Henry James said, you know, marriages, wills, inheritances, babies. <laughs> what you're working on right now, are you working on a Banville book or a, a Benjamin Black book? I'm right? desperately trying to finish a Benjamin Black book, which has been driving me crackers for, <laughs> for some months. It's gone on much longer than it should have. Uh, but I'm working on a Banville book. I mean, I have a band of book started. Mm-hmm. So, question I had wrapping up here. Um, you wrote a short piece in 1994, it's a while ago now, for The Independent, about Night Spawn, that first novel. And in it, you referenced your mindset while you were working on that book all those years ago. And the kind of fond amusement looking back at your younger self, I mean, very much came through. You said... At the age of 25, I had no doubt that I was about to transform the novel as we knew it. And I'm wondering if you could go back and tell your 25-year-old self, who's just writing this first novel, just starting out, if you could go back and have a conversation with with him, what, what would you say? I'd say, go ahead. You know, we can't change the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would like to. I have this fantasy that I'm walking past a bookstore and I click my fingers all my books on the shelves go blank so that I can start them again and get them right. Mm-hmm. But I know that I wouldn't get them right mm-hmm. next time round either. Um, we write what we write. We make our mistakes. We have tiny successes every now and then. We once a year. But no, I wouldn't interfere with the past. What's the... Yeah, I'm not asking for something precise like a percentage, but when you look, when you say you know, all your books go blank and you could write them again do you have and it was it was very cool just to have you reading this here and there was a line that you read and you said oh, I didn't remember that was in there I didn't remember writing that do you look at stretches or passages of your book where you th- or of your books where you think if I had a, I got it there maybe maybe I would redo the book maybe I would conceive it in a different way but do you have your own passages that you go back and look at and say I never ever go back never go back unless I'm forced to do it yeah. by, by like some you. guy handing you a book guy. saying will you read a page I had, complete, I had no memory whatsoever of that piece that I read nothing mm-hmm. a friend of mine went to visit Samuel Beckett in the nursing home towards the end of his life 
Rebecca was talking about how arrived at an age where he was forgetting everything. My friend began to sympathise, and Becca said, no, 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 it's wonderful, it's wonderful. I see now what he meant. I've forgotten most of them. Somebody showed me an examination paper once with an unsigned piece of prose and said, what do you think of that? And I said, well, it's, it's familiar. And uh, it turned out to be by me. <laughs> and I had completely forgotten. Yeah. Well, I think Max even... <laughs> He even talked about that at one point in the book. We're saying the actual details of our past, they aren't nearly as important as we give them as we give them credit for. Well, I mean, that's something we haven't talked about is, is the extraordinary nature of the, of the past and what it, what it means to us. I'm always fascinated by the question, when does the past become the past? You know, is it that second that's just gone? Is it that minute? Is it the hour? Is it yesterday? Is it ten years ago? It's like, when does a movie become a classic? You know, if you see a movie now that was sort of eight, nine years ago, you're giggling at the awful clothes that people are wearing and the stupid jargon they're using, which is completely outdated. But then the time comes when you don't notice that Humphrey Bogart's waistband of his trousers is somewhere up around his nipples, you know, and right. um, you don't notice these things. Mm-hmm. It, it has become a class. When does that point arrive? When does the past become the past? I think it becomes the past when, in fact, we've lost it. We think we have it, but in fact, the past that we treasure is, in fact, imagined. Mm-hmm. It has all the, the bits and pieces mm-hmm. of our experience, but it's imagined. And, you know, neuroscientists now they're beginning to agree with me at last you know they say <laughs> they're coming around they're coming around well they say that we don't in fact register surroundings or events what we do is we make a model of them and what we carry with us in memory is the model not the thing itself and that would explain why if you go back to a house you haven't been in for 20 years the window's in the wrong place you know it's all there but it's all well because the model has decayed in one's mind. But yet, of course, the past is so precious. It really is where we live. We don't live in the present. We look towards the future, but we live in the past. John Banville, thank you for being for time for the show. This was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.